let's dive in to our third week in the book of Lamentations. This week is, is unique because uh, when we write books today, we ordinarily save the climax for last. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans or some of the ancient you know, Near Eastern societies would actually write in what you can call almost like a pyramid manner. They would write the climax of the book in the middle, and then they kind of descend the other side once again. So we're actually at the climax of this book in week three. And it is 66 verses, three times the length of the initial two. There are, uh, it's a triple acrostic poem. Every third verse is a new letter in the Hebrew alphabet when it starts. So this is very high, high poetry, right? If you're a, a fake wannabe artist like me, uh, you appreciate good art when you see it. Um, if you could read Hebrew and you were reading this chapter, you'd be reading some of the most beautiful uh, dense poetry you would find in our scriptures. This was uh, a carefully written chapter, and so I want to carefully walk us through it today. I'm going to read 42 verses, all right? 42 verses aloud. Um, much of the scripture, uh, we, you know, uh, they didn't have printing presses in those days, and so scripture is made to be read aloud for the majority of its history. And so I'm going to read this aloud, just like uh, it probably would have been received in the days of Israel. So I'm going to read this, Lamentations 3, 1 through 42. This is the word of the Lord. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he, uh, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. 
It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of its steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert of man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord had commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Jesus, I pray as we walk through this this scripture Lord, that you would be the one speaking this morning and not me. That it be your words coming and not my own. And if, Lord, if any time throughout this sermon I need to branch off of the words that I feel you have given me, uh, allow me to do so and allow your spirit to take prominence above my own words. Um, Give us soft hearts, Jesus, to hear what you have for us and open ears to receive it. We love you so much, Lord. Your resurrection has once again summoned us together as a church family to look to you and hope, and I pray that we can do so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Week three of Lamentations is about hope in God's faithfulness. What we hear are two stories presented in this chapter of Lamentations, the author's story and God's story. The story of humankind can only really make sense if it is heard and studied and considered beneath God's story. Our stories cannot be understood apart from it. If we tried to do this, if we try and consider our narrative without God's, without the good news of Jesus, we will be found without meaning. And especially in times of challenge and immense trial, What purpose will we have to believe that any bright future would await us? I want to visit Jerusalem's story briefly and remind ourselves that in the context of the book of Lamentations, we are sitting with someone who watched Jerusalem burn and be conquered by the Babylonians. As a citizen of Jerusalem, he also inherited the powerful stories of God's previous salvation in Israel and his grand promises to them. If we could just imagine this author sitting with a pen and a scroll, Jerusalem still raging with fire, flashing through his mind are all the old promises and stories that he had received from his forefathers. Like this from Genesis chapter 12, speaking to Abraham, God said, I will make your family a great nation and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. He told Moses, the Lord will establish Israel as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. God speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
The grand stories of Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Seas, and countless other stories filling the mental space of who we believe will be Jeremiah as he was writing down the current state of Jerusalem and how his story was wrapped up in the story of that city. This is a space where Lamentations was written. It is also the space where great seeds of undying hope is born. For within tragedy in our own stories, we inherit promises of God that sometimes, even in the bleakest of circumstances, gives us reasons to hope that something greater does indeed lie beyond our current reality. This hope is often not easily received, and sometimes we have to kind of fight for it. Here's a little roadmap for our sermon today. We will look briefly at the author's own story and get a little glimpse into his kind of personal emotional state. Uh, We're going to look at the hope he found in God, recalling uh, God's character, who he is, and why he can find glimmers of hope in such tragic circumstances. And then we're going to have a difficult, honest, hard look at ourselves and also revisit this call for hope. Even as you look at an honest uh, look at our own church, we look forward to the future and knowing that we can rightly find hope as Emmanuel Church. So I want to look at some of these personal statements from our authors. We kind of, you know, I like to try to, as much as we can, get to know the biblical authors. Why did they write what they wrote? What was going on in their mind? What was their, their unique personalities that are kind of bleeding through the pages? Let's look at some of these words again. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Verse 3, surely against me he turns his hand again again the whole day long. He keeps going. We get this little glimpse that reminds us of last week's sermon, right? Where he's kind of letting, letting more accusations fly against God, saying, you have driven me into darkness. You've turned your hand against me the all day long. His body is wasting away, and it's God's fault, and on and on he goes. If you want to hear more about that difficult topic, if you missed last week's sermon, um, please listen to that as we look at that topic head on. But I want to stop right now and ask this. What is your story? There's a good chance that none of you have actually sat and observed a city get besieged and then burned and destroyed to the ground. That's, that's not like a normal thing in 21st century, in our West at least, that we observe, okay? Um, if you found, though, the ability and the courage to kind of be honest about your own story and to speak aloud the things that you have experienced and been through, what would that story be? And what are the things that may keep you from doing so? I believe this transfers over to the church as well, to all churches, okay? I will be talking right now about Emmanuel for a few minutes, but this also applies to every single church because there is a plague in so many churches around a country that has just played everybody that is just this uh, um, uh, almost like a, a, a political seeping into that, that thinks that we're, we need to uphold this certain image, right? That we need to be somehow holding this front that says, oh, everything's always fine here. There's never difficulties here. If you get a whiff of something hard or negative, you know, uh, no, you didn't. We're, we're good. That's uh, it's not a big deal. We're moving on. Everything's great. We're smiling. And you come to church and we're trained in this American Christianity to want to show up and say, nothing's wrong. I promise. Everything's good. And you're like gritting the, the smile on your face. This is something that's wrong with our church, right? Something that's wrong with our American 
church. And I want to talk about that specifically as it deals with our church here at Emmanuel. Guys, I'm speaking these words. I'm going to say to you as a man, I'm committed to the future of this church. If this ship goes down, I'm sinking with the boat. You understand? So I am here. I ain't going anywhere. All right? So if I can ask permission to say in this time of lament a few difficult pastoral words. When I was hired on here at Emmanuel, I heard from so many of you, and indeed, uh, they are wonderful, all the wonderful parts of Emmanuel's story, the grand and wonderful parts. Uh, However, it took months to learn the harder parts, and I still learn more of some of the harder parts in our story today. The grand legacy of this church, as is the case with many historic churches, I'm not just ragging on Emmanuel, this is something that is a challenge for many churches who have been been around for as long of a time as this one has. Um, uh, These churches with with huge stories of past ministry, ministry success and flourishing, past gospel ministry, right, that it was just big and really influential and impactful. Those stories can easily provide an ancient story to cling to, acting as a sort of blinders to our current reality. Emmanuel, we cannot relive the past. And I think as a church, we need to learn to get our hearts and minds more out of the past and become much more invested into the present. As a pastor here, I think I I know more about the 1970s and 1980s Emmanuel than I really kind of know about our current realities. Every month here, I've been thus far uh, trying to intentionally uh, spend more time with pastors and local leaders in the area, local business owners, introducing myself. Hi, I'm the new pastor at the church down the street here, Emmanuel. And there's usually two responses that I get. Um, the first one usually is one of unsurety of where our church is, even from people who grew up here and lived just blocks away. Um, that was from my barber last week who lives two blocks away, and I had to explain to him where we were, and he finally was able to figure it out. Or a recognition of the immense challenges that's been presented to this church um, that, have, that we have before us as we are to grow when I introduce myself as the pastor of Emmanuel. And please know I'm not up here enjoying saying hard words like this. Um, I'm also not interested in playing that church politics game and trying to only cast the image of the church in all the positive lights at all the cost that we can. I'm only convinced that much of us here at Emmanuel, we don't really know the real state of our church because I believe we've operated in isolation from local churches for a little too long. We've been separated from a church denomination for too long, and we've been doing kind of our own version of ministry here for too long without a whole lot of outside accountability and without outside relationships for the help and guidance and development of a healthy church culture and even guidance for our church's theological convictions. And I am trying to place these realities in front of you and say, I think these are contributing factors that have led Emmanuel to its recent decline. And step one in these changes is seeing this, is seeing that reality, and knowing that perhaps your own understanding of your own church might not be accurate because of that isolation that's been a bit of a part of Emmanuel's story, kind of uh, separate from other healthy expressions of Jesus' church. I know this is a season of hard words, 
This, I, I gotta, it's not fun. I'm not up here enjoying saying these things. But Emmanuel, I'm here to pastor you by whatever means I can. And I must try to speak as much truth as I can to your hearts and lead how I must for the sake of this church, whatever cost that may come. There's a reason why in church revitalizations there can be a trend of new pastors coming and going quickly because they by necessity try to really bring health to a church the best they can, begin challenging some, some things that's been around for quite a while and trying to re-aim the church, church towards a healthier future. And the biggest challenge for those churches is accepting the need for this and accepting what reality may come with that and not clinging to how things used to be. But this is a sermon on hope, okay? This will end on a very hopeful note, as you will see. But in staying true to this chapter, look how our author ends the first third of this chapter. In verse 16, he says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has covered me in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. We might read this and say, all right, well, our author, he's done. He's defeated. He's caved in. He's given up. Maybe after the things I just said, you might be thinking, well, geez, I think I'm done too, Mr. New Pastor, the way you're talking here. What endurance do I have to see Emmanuel through any sort of brighter future after hearing what we heard? But the author of Lamentations is not done because God isn't done. Because the gospel is actually true in the darkest of circumstances, hope always lies within, ready to surface and to take root. Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings and wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Just two verses away, he had no hope. Right? Well, what happened? It's a pretty big shift. I've lost hope. I have hope. Maybe you've like been there before emotionally, right? And dealing with something difficult. Like one minute you're like, there's nothing. Oh yeah, everything's good. You know, he's a human being writing here, but he's right. He, he was, he said this, pay attention. He was bowed down within him. And when he looked deep inside, that's when he found the hope. The Hebrew behind this phrase references a deep thought somewhere in his soul, something way deep in the caverns in there. He looks deep. And the author says, my soul and my affliction is continually bowed down within me. I feel as if wormwood and gall has filled me. But there's something else in my soul as I see as I am bowed down, I see something else. Something else lingers in there. Even if I feel like I do not have hope, when my soul has been bowed down so low, I recall another story. A story greater than my own. A story from God himself about Jerusalem, about King David and the future as a people and his future plans for this world. So even though hope seems lost as the city of God is on fire and is nothing but a pile of rubble, he says, I am still able to find hope for tomorrow. The ashes of Jerusalem are not the final chapter. Let's look at these next verses, some of the most famous in all of our Bibles. 
Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Can we say that together? Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This word for steadfast is also, it's, it's unique here. It's translated in various ways like loving kindness and the like, depending on the translation. It refers to a love of God, a covenant love from God that is not based on the response of the recipient. It is a love from God that says, I am committed to you, even if you are not committed to me. My love rests on you, even if your love does not rest on me. My hesed love, that's the word is hesed love. My steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The morning hours are beautiful in my house. The house is always quiet. The kids almost usually, sometimes they're up early, but most cases are still asleep. My wife and I wake up early while it was still quiet. We both camp out on the couch. We have like 45 books just piled all around us, right? We have pens and papers and our Bibles and we're sitting and we're, we're reading and we're, we're praying. We write, we whisper this or that as we read something interesting or we're praying, we hear something, we, we whisper to each other. And, and the day is kind of, it's on the horizon there as the sun is rising as this new blank slate before us. We do this for hours every morning, go to bed early every night so we can get up early and have on repeat this time because we know that every day is a blank slate with a new day with new mercies from God that are never exhausted. And I want to continually every day explore those mercies as we receive the grace of another day every single day. New mercies for a new day. Emmanuel, what happened and this church's past has happened, but there are new mercies available for us. As we must do the hard work of honesty, considering where we've come from in our current state, we look at tomorrow and say God is still committed to us in love. He is faithful to us. He always has been and he always will be. The idea of new mercies means that God has fresh new mercies each and every day for you and I. He is committed to you and I, and I want you to consider this. As we close in a little bit, we're going to sing Great is Your Faithfulness. You should think, I hope we are, right? Um, this is the old classic hymn that has been sung for so many generations. And in doing so, we are publicly and corporately together as a church family recognizing that God is committed to Israel, or to Emmanuel. What is Israel to be? It's Emmanuel. He is committed to us. He is faithful to us, much more than we are faithful and committed to him. I want you to feel the heaviness of that thought, the weightiness of that, that we're, 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 the Bible is claiming the God of this universe in an unthinkable fashion is committed to you and I, that he may draw us ever closer to himself. His faithfulness to us looks like fresh new mercies every single morning because we need fresh new mercies every single day. 
Mercy is given where it is needed. And Jerusalem was in great need as it was on fire and in need of rebuilding. I believe this church is also in need of great mercy. The new mercies of God in our lives and for our church can be likened to a clean, fresh spring water uh, uh, being poured into an old pitcher of murky water. I wanted to get one up here, but I didn't know how to do it, so last minute. But you know what I'm talking about. You have a, 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 a vase of, um, of just muddy water and you, you pour clean water long enough. What happens to that muddy water, right? It starts bellowing out, it bubbles up and it's out of that container before you know it. Jesus is, is always in the business of not pouring new wine into old wineskins and bursting them into destruction, but bringing new wine and asking us to provide new wineskins for his new work. There is no individual or no church anywhere that reads of the faithfulness of God and the new mercies he provides and has a right to say, nah, I don't need mercies. I don't need new mercies. I'm good. No. Guys, we are called to be in an ever-constant posture of humility to say, Lord, if we need the change, please show us how and please show us where. Especially if a church or congregation is given a landmark event that reveals a grand need for change, which is the case here. The only way this can work is to gain the posture of Jeremiah in this text as he continues on in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. The soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of our God. And here we find yet another fascinating Hebrew word. I learned this for the first time this week. It's very unique. It's the word tov, which we often translate as good. For us in the West, the word good, or the idea of the conception of good, are basic things that, you know, are agreeable. And not good things are things that are not agreeable. Like, you know, I grew up in Georgia, close to Atlanta, and watching the Braves yet again almost make it to the World Series for the who knows how many time. Um, That wasn't good. My whole childhood was watching the Braves almost make it, but that wasn't good. That's our definition of good or not good, right? Well, the word tov in our Bibles means so much more. In the Old Testament, the word tov is all that expresses the will of God. I heard one author express it with the phrase, tov is when everything works out as it should in light of God's divine plan. Isn't that beautiful? So let's reread those verses. The Lord is tov to those who wait for him, for those who seek him. And it is tov for us that we wait quietly for the salvation of our Lord. We flourish the most when our steps are guided by the Lord's, when we wait before we move. It is good, it is tov that we recognize God's salvation is at hand and is always at hand and that we wait quietly for him to act before we act. One of my favorite uh, uh, close friends that I have, he's a pastor in the Czech Republic, he always says, he always tries to identify where God is already working and he wants to latch himself onto that because he says wherever God is already working is a much better spot than for me to try to trudge my own work. That's a posture of humility, to say things are the way in which they should be when we allow God to guide us. It is a humble acceptance of a current reality, something that God has allowed to happen for his good purposes and ultimately our betterment. 
We must stop and pause and do the hard work of understanding what do you have for us in this, Lord? This is true congregationally for us, but this is also true for all of us who undergoes such challenging times. We work with a basic assumption that even within the story of incredible pain and difficulty that God is disciplining us because he is our father. As confusing as that can be, that is his work towards the children that he loves. Listen to the following verses from Lamentations 3. Let him bury his face in the dust, verse 31. There may, there, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, of his hesed covenant committed love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. We understand the author here is saying, okay, God, Jerusalem's face is in the dust, and maybe right now we need to go ahead and eat that dust because there may be hope. There may be something in the dust for us to learn. There is a difficult, this is a very difficult posture. It's, it's far easier to say of Jerusalem, right, to say rather, you know, this is Babylon's fault. Uh, they're the one who invaded us. Uh, it's also so-and-so's fault because look what they did. I, I, I know there's a rough passion in our story, but by golly, we're, we're Jerusalem. We're the city of God. We're the most important city. We just need to kind of dust off. We can just keep going here. No. Lamentations is trying to guide Israel to say, open your eyes to your current reality. You do need to be rebuilt, but there is hope for a better tomorrow. In their case, the enemy was still against them. The author even says, okay, here's my cheek. Go ahead. If you got to strike me, if this is the time, you can strike me. Uh, maybe there's something to learn right now. Even if for a time we feel as if we are cast off from the Lord, we know that we aren't. He isn't going to do so forever. Times of discipline is not forever, right? Difficulty and challenging times are not forever. The New Testament has a very similar call to allowing the Lord to discipline us when necessary. In Hebrews chapter 12, 7 through 11, the author of Hebrews has this to say. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. If dad, you're watching, good job, he disciplined me. I think he is watching. Thank you, dad. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of a righteousness for those who have been trained by it. If you want to know my heart of why I'm dragging you guys through this, it is for that purpose. The author here has hope because he is recognizing Jerusalem's immense trial is not a full-blown rejection of God, but rather discipline from him. In other words, after so many warnings from the prophets that he sent to Jerusalem, calling out their wrongdoing, he is saying, Okay, I get it. This has got to happen. And God is saying, I need you to rebuild my city and my likeness 
I'm not casting you off forever, but I'm giving you new mercies for a new beginning. Then later, Lamentations 3, it says, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? It is not from the mouth, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good come? I know there's difficulty with that. Let's leap forward to the fulfillment of all that this author is talking about. Let's leap forward in this process of lament as Emmanuel, and I want to look at the empty tomb of Christ. This will not be the last time we do so, week seven here. We're going to have a little Easter service. I'm excited about that, basically an Easter service. Um, But the reason why the Old Testament or Torah is not sufficient on its own is that we know Jerusalem fell because of ultimately sin, calamity, wherever it occurs in your life, in the life of a church, and whatever form that it happens, it occurs because we are in a fallen world. Sin is ever-present, right? Um, uh, I don't know who said it. If you look into your hearts and you try to uproot a sin, you know, the challenge is a new one just plants it right there, right? Or you uproot that one to find a new one. And you keep going, you realize this is a never-ending process. I'm much worse than I thought, right? You and I are sinners. And there's no perfect church anywhere in this world because wherever people are involved, sin is involved. But the empty tomb is the ultimate promise of the faithfulness of God to this world and to our church and to each of us. As an event that was witnessed by hundreds of people, God's way of showing this world that he is going to ultimately reverse everything that is wrong with this world. Everything related to sin and to death will be done forever away with once and for all. But there is an interesting statement as this is being recounted prophetically into the future in Revelation 21. When the story of this future is told, and I read it, geez, I don't know, 10 times a week. It's this most beautiful, most hopeful passage in all of our scriptures of the return when when heaven and earth come together. And Jesus says these beautiful words, behold, I am making all things new. His future work is not only for the future. If you paid attention to those tenses, right, he didn't say, I will make all things new. He says, I am making all things new. That is an important distinction because the resurrection event is not just a promise for the future. The giving of the Holy Spirit to us is his seal, yes, that our, is our guarantee of that inheritance, but more so, it is a guarantee of the resurrection power of God available to you and I right now. Romans 8.11 says this very explicitly. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if he dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a promise if I've ever heard one. No one is ever beyond those new mercies of God. No church is ever beyond those new mercies of God. No church is ever beyond it because the spirit of God is present. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The same spirit that literally brought death to life is here right now. The future, of, the future of Jerusalem wasn't easy as they returned, and their future looked very different from their past. But they labored on the premise of the promises of God. They labored within that hope, and their hopes were proven to be true 
as their labors eventually helped to carve the path for Jesus the Messiah to come and to bring those new wineskins of salvation for this world. God has plans for this church. His plans, I promise you, are much larger and bigger for this church than any of us realize. His plans for this church are bigger than we can ever imagine. Because the fact that we are gathered here this morning, the fact that I've sat with so many of you and heard that, yes, it was hard what we went through, but God just never told me to leave, and here I am. I am committed to this church. So many of you have that testimony, and I want to call all of you right now to see Emmanuel as God sees it, to see it through the lens of the Holy Spirit, to see it through that lens of the resurrection of the faithfulness of God, of all the heap of promises that lie within this book and say, God isn't done. He isn't done with us after all. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. It is a new morning, Emmanuel. New mercies we do, in fact, see. And as I call the worship team up, as we get ready to sing this out, I ask that we sing it as a prayer. That if you're in your heart, get personal for a minute, even disattached to this church's story, if there is a lack of hope in your life, if there is a lack of of faith or even belief that says, how can God still be committed to a person like me? How could God ever allow to happen what happened to me? I'm asking you to believe in something that may seem almost impossible, right? And I think as, as much as I know we, we, we have the opportunity for a reasonable faith, much of this call of faith in God's faithfulness and his promises based on real, true, actual events in the moment of crisis seems almost impossible to believe in. And it involves, indeed, it involves a leap of faith that says, God, I don't have anywhere else to hope in or to trust in other than the promises you have given. Where else do I turn in this world? What else is available to me to find hope in outside of the resurrection? If it is you this morning, then take this time as we sing this song to to release yourself from that burden, from that lack of, of faith, and allow God to overcome that within you. If you're here and you're a member of this church and you have been through all the tumultuous times, I ask, I humbly ask you, as the next months and the next years go by, as we can expect change to come here, and we pray that the Spirit manifests himself in a new and fresh way amongst this church, that you would remain committed to whatever has to happen to bring health and a bright future here. I may ask a lot of you in the oncoming months and years. I want to, because I believe that you guys are up for the task. You wouldn't be here. You have a thousand reasons to not be here, but you're here. And I believe God wants you here. I know I need you here, that's for sure. So as we sing this song, let this be a prayer to say, God, you were not done with our church. There's indeed a bright future for us. And let me pray as we um, walk into this. And I want to mention too, uh, during the song or after the song, 
I want to call up the elders in this, that are here this morning to be available for prayer. If you need to grab one of us for prayer, please do during this song or after this song. We'll be available up front. Let us pray. Jesus, um, I, I pray that uh, all the words spoken were from you, Lord. If anything I said was not of you, let that be dis- disregarded as, as rubbish, Lord. But may you be the thing, the, 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 the very one that just encaptures our wonder and all of our longings and all of our hope. If we are looking anywhere else for hope, if we are looking to escapism for for this or that, if if we are just kind of lazily walking into the sanctuary, just kind of walking through the motions to go home and do it again next week and just kind of wonder, I don't know why I'm even here anymore. Lord, this, this is a hurting world that needs more bright lampstands of the gospel. I firmly believe you have an important role for Emmanuel Church to play in the city of Wilmington. I believe that our steeple that rises so high right above us right here will shine once again as a bright and glorious lampstand of the gospel of the resurrection for this city. And Lord, whatever it takes, Lord, for us, as this author who wrestled with all of his shortcomings, all of Israel's shortcomings, all their weaknesses and some of the reality of where they were, but he cast himself on you in hope. May we as a church cast ourselves on you in hope, saying, Lord, this work is to be done by you and it's to be done through us. Please let us hide behind your cross and let your work through the power of your Holy Spirit come here and manifest himself among us. We love you, Jesus, so much. Thank you for the gospel, for without it, there is no hope. We pray this in your wonderful and glorious and beautiful name. Amen.
Lord God, we thank you for your undying faithfulness, your never-ending love. Lord, I ask that you will be with each of us as we, uh, as we go forth from, forth from this meeting today to uh, the rest of our week until we reconvene next week, that, uh, that you will be with us, that you will bless us, that you will give us the strength to proclaim your name to our neighbors, to our families, in the way that we go about our day and in the way that we speak. In 